0: Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases pharmacist podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. We're really excited to be back this week to continue our ID Week 2023 recap. So if you missed last episode, we discussed the late-breaking clinical trials that were presented in two different sessions this year. So please go back and check that out. It's always awesome to see what data is coming down the pipeline that might change our practice in the future. And then this week, we're going to get into those practice-changing trials that were published in the last year or so. We're also going to talk about the pipeline agents that were presented at ID Week. It's always so awesome to hear about new drugs in development. But before we do, I do want to introduce the other fabulous Breakpoints hosts that are joining me again this week to review all these cool data from ID Week 2023. So you know these fabulous women. They don't really need any introduction, but I will briefly tell you who they are again. So first is Dr. Julianne Justo. She's the clinical pharmacist lead of infectious diseases at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Julie, welcome to Breakpoints. Hey, y'all. Good to be back. And Dr. Jeanette Bouchard is a clinical pharmacist liaison for Dason down in North Carolina, but helping hospitals all over. Jeanette, welcome to
1: Breakpoint. Hi, good to be back. So excited to be hosting
0: (laughs) with my fellow hosts. This is always really fun, these episodes that we do. Yes, there's so much good stuff. And so it's awesome to be able to go back on the platform, watch it online, really dive into these sessions that are always very popular and always very relevant to our practice. So let's get started with no further ado, Julie. Do you want to begin with the pipeline? I'll be honest, uh, selfishly, this pipeline agent session is one of my favorite sessions every ID week, and it's probably because I get to learn all new things that I've never heard of before, and people go super nerdy into pharmacology to kind of give us a sense of these new agents and how they're working, and it just makes my heart sing. So uh, I I feel like this whole thing is an I feel nerdy anyway. So I'm very happy because we're going to talk about a cool agent in the gram-negative space, which is called Zerubor Bactam. So these data were presented by Olga Lamovskaya of Cupex Biopharma. This company was actually just purchased by Shinogi over the summer, who are the makers of Sifitoracol. So this has implications for what's going to happen with Zerubor Bactam, which is a beta-lactamase inhibitor, and Shinogi's product, which is Sifitoracol, as a beta-lactam. We're all hoping that they're going to have a nice little marriage moving forward. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So what did she talk about? She presented data demonstrating Zeruborbactam's relatively broad spectrum of activity compared to the newer beta-lactamase inhibitors that are either already on the market or in late-stage development. Specifically, we're talking about comparison to the DBOs like Avibactam, Relobactam, and Durlobactam as well as the boronic acid inhibitors, vaborbactam and tanaborbactam. So at the beginning of our slide deck, my favorite table actually outlines the KI values, which is an indicator of potency of the beta-lactamase inhibitor across a wide array of beta-lactamase enzymes. So it's a beautiful table with eight different BLIs across multiple beta-lactamase inhibitors, including many carbapenemases, that we are the most scared of. So things like OXA, VIM, IMP, NDM, and L1. So having a comprehensive quantitative comparison of all of these relatively novel BLIs in one place, to me was like a drool fest for gram-negative resistance geeks. I definitely favorited this table in my library. So the take-home point from the data that she presented on this slide is that Zerubor Bactam, relatively speaking, had potent activity against these wide variety of beta-lactamases, including metallobeta-lactamases. So that's a holy grail compound that we've been searching for for a long time. So that was super exciting. She also presented data on how Zeruborobactam can restore the activity of both IV and oral beta-lactams from everything from IV meropenem to oral cypidoxime and can restore a wide variety of activity against different gram-negative agents, specifically things like Acinetobacter and Pseudomonas. But why does it look so good? And she posited that, at least from the medicinal chemistry perspective, it appears minimally impacted by efflux pumps or porn mutations that can start to impact other BLIs. And pharmacokinetics are also super exciting, so I'm going to get excited. It's like Aaron talking about CMB, but stay with me for a moment because this is cool. The half-life of Bactam is about 30 hours. This is such an improvement over kind of our older BLIs like Tazobactam which again, if you go back to that recent pod episode, it's kind of on the order of like an hour, hour and a half, and tazobactam just runs out of the body. Um, But serubarbactam hangs out, and that's great. It seems to have linear kinetics, and you can do dose fractionation that would suit whatever corresponding beta-lactam you want to put it with. This is the probably most important thing that I heard from this presentation that I did not know before. There are also data she presented on the oral pro-drug called let me see if I got this right, Zeruborbactam oxymethyl. So this oral prodrug of this novel BLI appears to be 100% bioavailable. And this is very exciting because if this agent makes it all the way to market, it could potentially be an oral BLBLI to target ESBLs and CREs, which would be a total game changer. And it would revive oral agent options for uh, individuals that are struggling in currently might need to be admitted for IV antibiotics to treat these multi-drug resistant infections. So it's still relatively early. She presented, you know, a lot of preclinical and in vitro data, and we still have to wait for clinical data with Zerubor with whatever partner beta-lactam it's going to end up being with, but also super exciting to hear that they're working on an oral pro-drug formulation. So it still has to deliver, but I'm rooting for zerubor Backdam, What do you ladies think? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been a fan of this compound since February 2020, when Mike Dudley first made his appearance on Breakpoints to talk about the antimicrobial pipeline and how to develop antibiotics. And that was before the world ended and we had hope and could talk about such things right before COVID. But it just, it's really, really cool. Mike was also instrumental in the development of Faber-Bactam, for those who may not know that. So thanks, Mike, for all the strong work on these awesome beta-lactamase inhibitors. But yeah, it checks a lot of boxes, particularly
1: the availability of an oral formulation, which I think is a sore need. Yeah, I agree. The, the oral piece is definitely what's most exciting because that's hospital prevention right there.
0: Yeah. I also think it has huge implications for international use, a sore need, especially in other areas where metallos uh, predominate. Yeah. And polymicrobial infections, I mean, depending on what they pair it with, because I don't know if the parent beta-lactam is going to be available orally, but I think it's, yeah, got huge implications for war wounds and polymicrobial astinidobacter pseudomixes mm-hmm. and KPC producing Klebs. We had an excellent episode with a pharmacist who's practicing in Ukraine right now and their antibiotic needs are, you know, so it's so horrible to think about what's going on over there and all over the world. So yay for new antibiotics, which yeah, Jeanette, why don't you talk to us about another beta-lactamase inhibitor that's coming down the line?
1: Um, so I'm going to be very brief about this, but I'm going to talk about ceftibutin, letiborbactam, Le, etzodroxyl. Don't ask so me why you the, guys these drugs,
0: not me, because I can't pronounce not, anything as we learned in the first episode. Carry the on. The word with the Z Let's be, was wait, the easier Wait, but hold one. on.
1: If the pharmacist can't pronounce it, there's no hope for any of us. I had it down last time, and now I jumbled over it this time, so... But don't worry, I have the Z1 down. Yeah. Okay. So ceftabutin, letiborbactam, etsidroxyl was presented by Paul McGovern from Venatorix Pharmaceuticals. This is a cephalosporin-boronate beta-lactamase inhibitor pro-drug combination under development as oral treatment for multidrug-resistant infections. Letiborbactam, which is our novel aspect of this drug, was formerly known as vnrx 5236 is a broad-spectrum beta-lactamase inhibitor that inhibits Ambler class A, C, and D enzymes. Data from phase one was presented at ID Week. Specific highlights from this are that the prodrug letivore bactam does get rapidly absorbed and converted to letivore bactam with less than 2% plasma exposure as the prodrug. Bioavailability was minimally around 70%. And the combination was safe and well-tolerated, with the most frequent adverse events being headache, frequent bowel movements, both noted to be about 30%. There was also global surveillance data from Karlovsky and colleagues, which showcased that ceftibutin leadoborbactam inhibited 85.9% and 82.9% of KPC and OXA48 positive isolates, respectively, at less than or equal to 1 microgram per milliliter and inhibited 77.3% of tevipenem-resistant isolates. Since it is being paired with ceftabutin, a third-generation cephalosporin that was on the U.S. market for a hot moment, but was withdrawn a few years later due to poor sales, they're going to be jumping right into phase three studies for complicated UTI, which is fun. So going from phase one to phase three, which is why we decided to just touch on it today in the podcast, as it might be something we want to be on the lookout in the future. Awesome. Another
0: oral, possibly ESBL and CRE drug, I think is is exciting for sure. So it's two BLIs that we're developing orally. But because it's a boronic beta lactamase inhibitor, it would not be expected to have activity a cl- against class B enzymes, but still a very important compound and a need for oral.
1: Yay. All right. I think we're going to switch gears here and move towards the C. diff realm because As a stewardship pharmacist who doesn't love talking about C. diff, we have a few different pods talking about some of our newer fecal transplant data. So we're going to try talking about a different type of C. diff medication today, and that's Ibezapulstat. So this was presented by Michael Silverman from Acurex Pharmaceuticals. Notably, Kevin Gary's lab is who is producing a lot of the data for this specific drug. It is a small molecule inhibitor of DNA pol 3C enzyme based on competitive inhibition of DGTP, which is a guanosine analog. So DNA pol 3C is essential for DNA replication for low GNC content gram-positive bacteria. So basically its job is to add a guanosine residue on the DNA chain. This is only in gram-positive bacteria and not gram-negative or mammalian cells. So it makes it a very specific target and it's not all gram-positive bacteria, so it makes it a great target for C. diff. They showed phase one trial data, and in that phase one trial, they showed high fecal concentrations, and with comparison data to um, vancomycin, ibezapolstat preserves a lot of the secondary bile acids compared to vancomycin, as well as changes the microbe in a different way than vancomycin. Notably, it disrupts the microbiome very similarly to fidaxomycin and we think about vancomycin versus fidaxomycin and C. diff, we tend to think of as being less disruptive to the microbiome because it's more narrow than vancomycin. And so having ibezapolstat be more similar to fidaxomycin is actually good in this case and what we are looking for. Other things that they noted about ibezapolstat was that it reduces flagellar movement of the organism. It's also effective against MDRO strains. It reduces toxin production, and it was also effective at killing C. diff uh, biofilms. So these are all really good things that we look for in a C. diff drug, so it makes it really exciting. When you look at the clinical phase two study data, it's that it had potent C. diff activity, and then 2B is still working on it. Enrollment is complete, but in the current data, that they have good clinical cure rates. So yeah. a lot to be excited for here with the C. diff drug.
0: Yeah, this is really strong work out of Kevin's group and in partnership with this company to bring this drug forward. I think they presented the phase one data at ID Week 2022, if I'm not mistaken, which we did not cover at the time because we try to do more of the phase two and phase three molecules because there's so many cool things in development. So it's inspiring to see the phase two coming through. Maybe we are presenting the phase three next year. Who knows? Stay tuned. Yes. Speaking of that progression, one of the drugs I'm going to talk about is MAT2203, which we will affectionately refer to here on out as oral amphotericin, which, yes, you heard it here first, Woohoo! oral amphotericin. This is very exciting. Like, no more amphoterrible. It's just terrific. Oh, that was terrible. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> this was presented by Teresa Makovitz from Matinas Biopharma, who are developing this compound now. Oral amphotericin, some of you may be like, this is old news. I've already heard about it because you're super up on the recent literature, which we'll talk about in practice-changing cl- clinical trials. Um, but this was actually studied in a phase two trial for cryptococcal meningitis in Uganda. So the ENACT trial, which was led by David Bulware out of the Midwest in the United States, but collaborating with colleagues overseas and looking at the, this molecule for the treatment of cryptococcal meningitis. And that trial is published in CID. It was presented at ECMID and ID Week last year, and this was a critical proof of concept trial to move this compound forward into phase three. So, in an act very briefly before I talk to you about the coolness that is oral amphotericin, they essentially looked at oral step down versus all oral therapy, and they saw continued sterility of CSF through 18 weeks of follow up. Had really compelling survival data, and really no signs of renal or electrolyte issues after six weeks of treatment in people in the oral amphotericin group. So. What a game changer. Now, why is that true? What is different about oral amphotericin? Why is it not toxic? What's happening here? Well, I'll tell you guys, because I know you can't wait to hear. Oral amphotericin is developed in this novel lipid nanocrystal, LNC. And I am quoting this mechanism of action from Dr. Boulware's publication in CID, from the ENACT trial, because I can't paraphrase it better than they do. So I'm basically reading this paragraph from the publication. If you guys are like, Aaron plagiarized this, I am simply reading this paper out loud because it's a beautiful story. Okay. So LNC, oral amphotericin, was developed as an alternative to IV, of course. This lipid nanocrystal has three main components. So one is the active drug, amphotericin B, calcium, and then this phosphatidyl serine, which is a natural phospholipid that they derived from soy. So when you Take this lipid So when the patient has this administered enterally. Macrophages actually engulf and transport these LNCs to the site of infection. Now, that's important. Remember, this drug is taken up by white cells. You need white cells at the site of infection. So this might have some implications in our cell transplantation patients that are like profoundly neutropenic. Is this drug going to be less effective? Uh, I don't know. That gets like real into the immunology. But taken up by macrophages transported to the site of infection. This lipid nanocrystal structure actually protects the amphotericin against degradation in unfavorable environments, such as an acidic stomach pH, and it allows targeted intracellular delivery into macrophages and into reticuloendothelial cells. So once the lipid nanocrystal is captured intracellularly, then the low intracellular calcium concentration triggers that nanocrystal to open, and it releases the drug inside the cell like this like magical surprise box that opens but then the cell dies. And because the amphotericin is locked up into this solid nanocrystal particle, it doesn't come out until it's actually inside the target cell, so the body is protected from amphotericin toxicity. This is truly the coolest thing ever, like science so cool. Is, science is so awesome. Other good things about this. This drug can be stored at room temperature, which Some people listening may be like, who cares? Well, this has huge global implications for where this drug can be delivered, administered. If something needs to be frozen in a negative 80, negative 80 freezers are very expensive. Like that's helpful to um, sites that have less resources or transportation issues, et cetera. So room temperature storage is great for a global benefit all across the world. And so essentially, I kind of liked how they presented this. They're like, it's all the amphotericin we love, which is potent broad spectrum fungicidal activity, Minimal drug interactions. Amphotericin IV does have that going for it, right? Not many DDIs to worry about, if any. And a general low propensity for resistance. But we have none of the headaches with the oral. So we don't have the toxicities. We don't have the electrolyte dyscrasias. We don't have the nephrotoxicity as much. We don't have to give something IV. We're getting really awesome concentrations right at the site of infection. It does cross the blood-brain barrier. Again, it seems to be very well tolerated and safe. And so this is pretty fantastic. Interestingly, you can't do traditional PK on this compound because of its unique mechanism of action. If you tried to, it would only have an oral bioavailability of about 10%. But because of its targeted nature and the platform delivery, you're getting super high tissue concentrations. And so traditional PK, PD is not really going to apply here, which is going to be interesting as we use it further. The company, after the successful phase two, did initiate an expanded access program. And they've had 11 patients so far with all kinds of invasive fungal infections, so sinus tract, CNS, brain, bone, bladder, lung, you name it, these complicated infections we have a lot of trouble treating. These 11 patients all could not tolerate IV amphotericin due to the renal toxicity, and then so they were switched to oral. After the switch to oral, again, it's only 11 patients, there's no comparator group, but they were all able to be discharged, and their renal toxicity reversed back to their baseline, which is pretty amazing. And so, so far, they're stating positive clinical outcomes for these 11 patients. And so what was presented at ID Week 2023 is that they're moving on to phase three. So invasive aspergillosis, oral step-down therapy. They're focusing their efforts now on this phase three trial. And they're in discussion with the FDA about what this study design is going to look like. So I am really excited about this compound. I think it's a true game-changer in a really hard-to-treat patient population. I agree. Let's go. Let's go with all the orals to treat the hard stuff. I'm so excited. Yeah, this is all. I didn't even realize that until I'm like now hearing you guys talk. It's like, these are all oral options. This is so great. Okay. And then the last one I'm going to talk about really quick that they covered in the pipeline session is not oral. So I'm sorry. Totally broke the pattern of goodness. But this is is very cool uh, because we love T-cells. On break points. I really do. I'm going to make you a shirt that I says love I t-cells. love T cells. I would wear it every day. I would alternate it with my Aero's Tour sweatshirt. Oh, I would, <laughs> well, I'd wear it under my Ares Tour sweatshirt and I would just carry them both with me at all times. I'm wearing okay. my Aero's Tour sweatshirt right now. Oh my gosh, you are. I don't yes. have one. We're good. I'll just stick to the T cells. <laughs> Taylor Swift, person of the year, T cells, body just, component oh, of the gonna year. This is going to become a campaign. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I wish I could interview T-cells and talk about their glory. Okay. <laughs> so this was presented by Dr. Richard Reese from Aloe Vera. Aloe Vera, uh, is a company developing antiviral modalities in different forms. They're, they're developing things that are going after 11 viruses that either have no approved or very limited effective treatment options. This is very cool. So what they presented was posoleucil, which is, for those at home looking up the chemical compound, ALVR-105. So this is an allogeneic, quote, off the shelf, and that's important. I'll come back to that. Multivirus-specific T-cell therapy that targets adenovirus, BK virus, CMV, EBV, HHV6, which we're not going to talk about whether or not that's an infection. It targets it. And then even JC virus, which the data for that's out of the BK virus data, but still very cool. This is given as a compound of 2 times 10 to the 7th cells. If you're less than 40 kilograms, and then four times 10 to the seventh, if you're 40 kilograms or greater. And it's an infusion, so not oral, but they gave that or they gave placebo for patients at week zero. So the moment you identify the infection, and then week two, so two doses. Okay. If anyone treats immunocompromised patients and particularly the cell transplantation and solid organ transplantation space, you know that sometimes we try to give engineered T cells as a hail Mary end of the line therapy. We've done this for COVID 19. We do this for Adno, we do this for c m v. um it's never really been proven because it's always totally end of the line. There are very few centers around the United States at least that you can actually get this therapy done. It's extremely expensive and it's complicated. so this off the shelf is is so cool because it's saying they're taking this like cell bank of of human cells that they've engineered. And it's like ready to give to anyone and you can give it in any center. So if this proves effective, it would really change the game. What they did is they rationally designed the cell bank to ensure the availability of partially HLA-matched virus-specific T cells to 95% of patients or more with a minimum two HLA allele match. And this would, in theory, restore your T cell immunity. So they studied this in a phase two trial of 58 patients that were aloe cell transplantation recipients that had refractory or resistant viruses. In the adeno group, 83% of patients that had adenovirus were able to be controlled by week six. And the median time to resolution was about two weeks. So this is an ongoing phase three registrational trials. This isn't available yet. We haven't seen final data yet. I don't know if it's gonna work, but I hope it does because you guys know I love nothing more than when we flip the paradigm and instead of trying to kill bacteria or really kill things, We're like, you know what, let's just make the human better and let's enhance the immune system. This is how excited I was when the checkpoint inhibitors came out in the oncology space. I just thought this was like the neatest thing. And those have panned out to be quite successful. So that's kind of the philosophy here. And I'm excited to see where this goes. I agree. I'm very glad to see the opposite side of the coin in terms of boosting immunologic response and therapy as opposed to an antimicrobial. So. Even though it breaks the pattern of orals, it's going into a
1: totally even broader paradigm. So I am okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's still against the norm. You know, we're not just doing IV drugs. It's, it's, it's like
0: a, it's like a supplementary infusion. Yeah.
1: But new drugs are good.
0: Absolutely. So that rounds out the summaries of the pipeline agents. And I'm just going to mosey right on to the next section that we like to recap every year for ID week. This is the clinical trials that may change your practice. Bacterial trials was presented by Tom Holland of Duke University Medical Center, and he did a great job. Um, The first trial that he talked about, which I agree, I think is practice changing, is the PALACE trial. Um, It was published in September 2023 in JAMA Internal Medicine by Copasco and colleagues. This was a study looking at the patients that have penicillin allergies and whether or not it's safe to kind of skip penicillin skin testing, which is potentially expensive and time-intensive and resource-limiting, and move straight to oral penicillin challenge. They utilize a validated score called the PENFAST score. It's a mnemonic PENFAST, and the F-A-S-T stand for different components of the score. So very briefly, the F stands for whether or not the penicillin allergy for the patient um, occurred within five years or less. And then A stands for anaphylaxis or angioedema. S stands for severe cutaneous adverse reaction. And then the T stands for treatment required for the reaction. And these are, each one of these letters are corresponding with either one or two points. And then you total up all the points based on the allergy history that you get from the patient. Once you tally up all the points, the score goes anywhere from zero to five. Zero, one, or two points would qualify as either very low risk of a positive penicillin allergy test or low risk of potentially having a positive penicillin allergy test if one were to move forward to do penicillin skin testing. So, using this PenFast tool, if there's zero, one, or two as the patient's individual score based on their penicillin allergy history, you would be able to move forward in theory to go straight to an oral penicillin challenge, which would save all the time and uh, energy for the skin testing. So that is the hypothesis, that it's safe to to move forward um, with this protocol. It's an open-label randomized controlled trial. It was set up as a non-inferiority study with a pre-specified 5% uh, margin. It was conducted in six outpatient centers within the United States and Australia. Patients uh, could not have a history of anaphylaxis uh, to penicillin. Patients were randomized to the standard procedure, which would be penicillinology skin testing, and then if that looked good, they'd move forward to um, oral penicillin challenge, or this new methodology where we would apply PenFast. If they had a low enough score of zero, one, 1, or 2, we would move straight to oral penicillin challenge and potentially save some time. The primary endpoint was physician verified positive oral challenge, which would be bad. We don't want to see these, right? Um, And this is defined as a reaction occurring within an hour and having signs of an immune-mediated response. They enrolled 377 patients, 190 in the skin test group, which was the standard of care, and then 187 in that new oral challenge group. Interestingly enough, the majority of patients enrolled in this trial, over 94%, were either very low risk, zero points, or low risk at one point. Most patients, over 84% of the oral challenges that were used, They were given either single-dose amoxicillin of 250 milligrams or 500 milligrams. So for those centers that are doing a lot of this oral penicillin antibiotic challenges, they'll recognize this regimen. Interestingly enough, it seemed very feasible. So what did they find? There was one positive oral challenge in each arm of just under uh, 200 patients. So the risk difference between the two arms, the standard versus the, the novel regimen, was 0.0084%. It was uh, not statistically significant. Most importantly, they had a 5% non-inferiority margin for the upper bound, and then their 95% confidence interval only went up to positive 1.24. So they met their non-inferiority endpoint for this new procedure of moving straight to oral penicillin challenge with the application of the PenFast tool. There are no serious adverse events in either arm, and For the two patients in the entire study that did have a reaction to the oral penicillin challenge, they were managed each with one dose of diphenhydramine and their symptoms resolved. The take-home was, you know, there's a lot of folks that have been interested in trying to delabel penicillin allergies safely and appropriately, but scale has been kind of an issue if you've been relegated to trying to do skin tests first and then followed by an oral penicillin challenge. This would streamline things remarkably. So I'm really excited for locations that don't have access to to skin testing that they can potentially move and get a good bulk of people straight to oral penicillin challenge. Ladies, what do you think? I mean, yeah, I think people should do this.: I think this is <laughs> I think if you're going to do one thing this year, if you're not doing it, I said this last year too, so if you haven't done it yet, that's okay. We're very busy but if your stewardship program or your infectious diseases program is going to tackle one thing this year, it should be penicillin allergies. It makes such a huge impact on patient care. And we've been doing graded challenges in Pennsylvania as well because pharmacists cannot administer skin testing in Pennsylvania and it's expensive and time consuming. And so we just went straight to oral challenges or if they're in the hospital, we do 10% test dose IV challenges. We've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds at this point with no reactions. We let graded challenges be done in any any clinic, any unit of the hospital, any prescriber can order it. Any nurse can activate it. They don't have to be under special observation and they're very, very successful. So I think you should do this. I will say too, I was fortunate enough in September of this year to spend time in Australia with this group. So Jason Tribiano is the senior author on this paper and all of his colleagues are the authors on this paper. And I got to watch them in action and at their hospital in Melbourne, Australia, They have a whole allergy service that rounds, and so they have a pharmacist, an APP, uh, like a fellow, a visiting fellow, and then Jason goes on rounds too, and they interview the patients, they go through the PenFest score, they talk to the patient, and they either do the oral challenge right there in the hospital, or they refer them to clinic if they have more severe reactions. It's really, really amazing what they've done and the amount of resources they have to do it because they've proven that this is such a valuable program. And that's spread throughout Australia. So a lot of hospitals are getting these allergy services, which have a full pharmacist FTE to support them. Pretty amazing work. That's awesome. That's really enviable to have that amount of resources focused on allergy. Seriously. But I'll say it can be done even with a lot less. So I'm, I'm sitting here at DHMC and I was super impressed. I walked in and I looked at their beautiful pre-built order panels for how to handle like they pretty much automated everything. Like It's all right there, whether you're a nurse, a physician, uh, a medical intern, you can walk through the entire algorithm and it's so easy to order an Orla challenge. So it it can be done. There's lots of centers that have examples and I know folks are more than happy to share if you want to reach out to them. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's, it's if you're listening to this podcast, this is the thing you should do. So you can stop now, I guess. Although what Julie's about to... <laughs> What Julie's about to talk about in the bacterial practice changing trials is also something you should do. So this is another readily implementable. And Tom said this too, when he was reviewing these, he had a summary and he's like, so great challenges, do it. And then this next one you're going to review with us, Julie, is another one he said you should immediately start implementing in your practice. So yeah, teach us. Yeah. So so I'm taking a little bit more time on on both of these because we're trying to encourage people to do it. But I again, I strongly encourage you, pull these papers, read them, watch Tom's lecture. It's all great. Um, The second study is the DOXYPEP study. So this was published in April of 2023 in New England Journal of Medicine by Lutgemeyer and colleagues. It's basically talking about post-exposure prophylaxis with doxycycline to prevent sexually transmitted infections. So the fun history here, everybody in the room and pretty much in ID loves DOXY. It's like everybody's favorite antibiotic. There have been lots of, (laughs) he made a really funny joke, Giving a shout out to what antibiotic are you that quiz that was circulating a while ago, and like all of us were lamenting when we got anything other than doxy, and he made me laugh out loud when he like showed his slide that he got clindamycin. and he's like, "I don't know what this means and he quickly like sped past the slide. So yes, this has nothing to do with the science, but for the moment, I you know geeking out again, i I thought that was very funny. Um, so what's the context for how this particular trial of doxypep came to be? So previously, there is a trial that was published called the hypergay trial, which was conducted in men who have sex with men on HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. They were given this doxycycline as post-exposure prophylaxis, and it demonstrated a 47% reduction in subsequent diagnosis of sexually transmitted infection. And so what they wanted to do with this trial, DOXYPEP, was extend the patient population to MSM and transgender women who are taking um, HIV PrEP or those who were living with HIV. So this is an open-label randomized controlled trial. The patients must have been diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection within the last year. They performed this trial in San Francisco and Seattle, and the patients had to undergo quarterly STI testing, so routine STI testing to pick things up. Patients were randomized in a two-to-one fashion to either post-exposure prophylaxis with uh, doxycycline 200 milligrams as a one-time dose, Um, or standard of care, which was no doxycycline PEP. In total, 641 patients were enrolled, 433 in the doxy PEP arm versus 208 in the standard of care arm. The primary outcome was the incidence of one or more sexually transmitted infection within the following quarter. So here's the punchline. They demonstrated a 66% relative risk reduction in STIs within that next quarter following that potential exposure. Crude incidence of STI was 10.7% in the doxypep arm versus 31.9% in the standard of care arm, which led to that relative risk of 0.34, which was uh, statistically significant. Um, When they broke it down by the individual STI, be it gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis, all three of those also were significantly uh, decreased as subgroup analyses. There was a small increase in resistant gonococcal infections. So, five out of the 13 gonococcal infections in the doxy arm ended up having some doxy resistance. And then two out of the 16 gonococcal infections in the standard of care arm ended up having some resistance. That is an important signal that we need to pay attention to in the data. Importantly, there were no serious adverse events noted in the trial. So, these are big treatment effects as a result of this trial, the CDC released draft guidance on October 2nd of 2022, saying to do this, give these patients that match the patient population for this trial this doxypep, if so, indicated. So the draft guidance is to take this dose of doxy as post-exposure prophylaxis within 72 hours of oral, vaginal, or anal sex for patients who are gay, bisexual, or other MSM and for transgender women with a history of bacterial STI within the last year. So lots of qualifications on that. Make sure that you're familiar uh, with whom the patient population is that's technically eligible for this doxypep. In addition, the CDC, because these uh, guidance recommendations are in draft form, they had an open comment period that actually closed in mid-November. As of the time of this recording for this podcast episode, we're still awaiting the final versions of the guidelines. But We anticipate them to come out relatively soon. This is truly practice changing. And in addition to screening patients that would be eligible for doxypep, there's also lots of patient counseling on how to safely take doxy, manage any side effects. Of course, we're going to take the opportunity to counsel on safe sexual practices, additional um, STI testing for things like HIV and so on. So
1: super cool. What do you guys think? I mean, I think this is great. I agree that this should be something that we implement in our our regular practice. And obviously the CDC is mostly on board with this as well, hopefully by the the final draft.
0: Yeah. I mean, the comment period is closed and we don't have the final guidelines yet, but I can, if I was a betting woman, which I'm actually not, but if I was, (laughs) I would say this is going to be in the CDC STI guidance. So Buckle up, get prepared to implement this in your emergency departments, and your clinics, because this was a huge relative risk reduction. And that really kind of rounds it out for two practice-changing trials that I wanted to highlight in the bacterial section. There are others that Tom went through. He has a a fantastic presentation. Just uh, some teasers, the ceftabiprole data for staph aureus bloodstream infection is definitely there. I'm choosing not to go over it right now because we're going to have a whole podcast episode in the first quarter of 2024, where we're actually going to bring Tom onto the pod and he's going to tell us all the deets about this ceftiviral study. So I know I'm teasing that a little bit, so I apologize, but um, it deserves its whole episode. Everybody loves Cephory Spectrum, yet at least I do. Yeah, we can't wait for that. And listeners of Breakpoint, stay tuned for some announcements that'll be coming on social media, our LinkedIn, for the Society of Infectious Diseases, Pharmacists, etc. because it'll be a Breakpoint episode that we're going to invite the entire world to, to- participate in. So to talk about the eradicate trial. So we're really thrilled about this and stay tuned for more. And with that, let's talk about CMV again, because we haven't in the last 20 minutes. So it's time. I'm just kidding. I'm actually only briefly going to talk about <laughs> CMV, but I am. Well, I'm not kidding. I always But anyway, so I'll very briefly talk about CMV, but we're going to move into the practice changing trials in the antiviral space and the viral infection space. And the presenter did say her favorite infection is also CMV. So yay for that. But the real thing I'm going to focus on is the two publications for the RSV vaccines. And we talked about RSV therapies and preventative therapies in our first episode a little bit because in the late breakers, um, the nursevimab data came out, which is the preventative antibody, of course. But in this section, we're going to talk about the two landmark publications in the New England Journal of Medicine about RSV vaccines. RSV is something that causes a lot of morbidity and mortality, particularly among infants and small children, um, but can really impact our patients with advanced age as well. And so we had two trials come out and now have two vaccines available for this RSV season, which is really, really amazing. So the first was developed by Pfizer. This vaccine's brand name or marketing name is Abrezzo. And both of the vaccines I'm going to talk about, the Pfizer vaccine, and then there's also one from GSK, which is Arexv, they work because neutralizing antibodies form to this prefusion protein in RSV. And so, a the Pfizer vaccine, has two different prefusion F antigens. So, it's a bivalent vaccine. Um, and it's was studied to prevent lower respiratory tract disease caused by RSV in patients 60 years of age and older. It was also studied in pregnant persons, which we'll talk about later. Now, the GSK vaccine was only studied in persons 60 years of age or older, is very similar, but this is an adjuvant vaccine. And so some, it's interesting, we'll talk about this after we learn the data, some are coming out and saying perhaps that you might get a little bit more robust of an immune response from the adjuvant GSK vaccine. And so there's already a ton of interest, particularly in the transplant infectious diseases community, about using this off-label in every lung transplant patient and other patients that are at really high risk for respiratory viruses. Whereas the Pfizer vaccine is the only one with data in pregnant persons. And so that's super important. And I think systems and clinics are having to make decisions. Do you carry both vaccines? Do you carry one or the other? There's pros and cons to each. So back of your mind as we discuss this. Basically, both vaccines work. So in the GSK vaccine, the publication shows an overall vaccine efficacy of 82.6% against RSV-induced lower respiratory tract disease in adults aged 60 years of age or older, which met its primary endpoint. In adults that have an underlying medical condition of interest, so not just age, but also tie-in cardiorespiratory syndromes, endocrine metabolic conditions, that make you higher risk, 94.6 efficacy. So really solid, right? And this is now approved and recommended. Pfizer, looking at least at the interim data um, that was published, the data cutoff date for this interim analysis was July of 2022. This was published in the New England Journal in 2023. They looked at a vaccine efficacy of about 66.7 percent. And this, again, was only in their elder population. But again, it was also studied in pregnant persons. So where are we at with these two vaccines? It is now recommended for all adults age 60 years of age or older, they can go ahead and get a single dose of an RSV vaccine using a shared clinical decision-making model. Now, that might be confusing. You're like, what the heck? Do I get it if I'm 61 or not? And I think that was because when it's the first season, we're still looking at ongoing efficacy in these. Is this going to be an annual vaccine? Is this going to be something you get every five years, every 10 years? We don't know. And so The recommendation will evolve as we learn more about that. Again, these are super new. And the other thing is immunocompromised patients were excluded from these trials as they typically are. So I already talked about the interest in using it in those patients. We don't know there. The companies both want longer follow-up to truly assess efficacy. And then there were a really small number of frail participants and participants aged 80 years of age and older included. And so just lots of caveats in there. And so in this first season, they basically said they're available, they're approved if you want to get it. But we need to learn more data about who will optimally benefit and what the dosing schedule for life is going to look like. But regardless, I think this is very exciting. And I think if you are an adult age 60 of years of age or older and going to be around babies this RSV season, you should probably go ahead and get it, which lending then to our infants and young children recommendations. The CDC says to prevent severe RSV disease in infants, that maternal RSV vaccination should be done with the Pfizer vaccine, or if the the mother was not vaccinated, then infants can now get immunization with the RSV antibody, which is nirsevimab, which we cover a lot in our first episode. Not going to lie, I don't really love the term vaccination for use of this monoclonal antibody because giving a monoclonal antibody for prevention is like, not a vaccine, but I do understand what they're getting at here. But they are two very different things, right? So either the person who gave birth to you can have received a vaccine and then the infant would be protected by the antibody transfer. Or if that did not occur, then the infant does have this antibody available after they are born. So a little bit different, but regardless, both very helpful in preventing severe RSV disease. The vaccination schedule for pregnant persons is one dose of the maternal, again, the Pfizer product, RSV vaccine during weeks 32 through 36 of pregnancy. You should give this immediately before or during RSV season. A is the only RSV vaccine recommended during pregnancy. I've said that five times now, so hopefully that sticks. Just the fact that both of these vaccines exist is very, very exciting, and you should be aware that these publications are out. If you want to learn more about prevention and treatment of non-COVID viruses, we do have a Breakpoints episode called I Never Met a Pneumovirus that Required Antibiotics, which is perhaps one of my favorite titles we've ever put out. That episode was released on September 16th, 2022. We dive a lot more into this, and so you can go check that out.
1: RSV vaccines, guys. Very exciting. Do you think the companies were in cahoots about the name? Like, were they like, hmm? targaryen names amen (laughs) and Aegon. let's keep it going for these vaccines
0: man i hope so
1: yeah i hope so i can see a
0: t-shirt on that too (laughs) that would help people get them if that's gonna increase the campaign to get people vaccinated then godspeed you know (laughs) give them different haircuts they have different personalities and then i can actually remember the patient populations and their indications i'm totally down for this Jeanette. it's all you yeah my creative vibes are flowing yeah. So RSV vaccines. I think you should get one. I mean, I don't know. If your insurance pays for it, get one, right? Why not? As as um, a mom, wait, but as a mom of like toddler twins who herself has probably succumbed to RSV multiple times in the last three years. Hallelujah. This is so exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, and, not,
0: and not to be remiss, I must mention. So our friends Moderna, the mRNA vaccine people from COVID, are indeed (laughs) developing an mRNA vaccine for RSV as well. So using that platform for other viruses. So we'll see what happens there. There were actually several other companies that were developing either prefusion protein vaccines or mRNA vaccines for RSV and dropped out of the race, basically, because, you know, we didn't have anything. And now all of a sudden we have this emergence of science and all of these ones coming forward. So GSK and Pfizer won the race, but Moderna's still in it since they have a different platform. So we'll see how that develops other virus things very quickly. First, the Aurora study was presented. This is looking at Mirabavir. Um, so again, we did a lot on CMV a couple episodes ago, but Marabavir inhibits the UL-97 protein kinase, kinase, which inhibits viral encapsulation and nuclear egress or viral particles of CMV. So this is very CMV specific. So if you're using this drug and you also are concerned for HSV, VZV, other viruses, you have to add things Merbivir is very specific to CMV, and it was FDA approved for the treatment of patients 12 years of age and older with post-transplant CMV infections that are refractory or resistant to ganciclovir, valgancyclovir, cidofovir, or phoscarnate. What's nice about it, theme of this podcast episode, is that it's orally bioavailable. It does have a terrible taste disturbance associated with taking it. It was actually the the, do, the dose-limiting factor in phase one and two trials that kind of delayed its coming to market because Patients just complain of this dysphysia, but alas, orally available. And so Aurora was a randomized double-blind trial where they compared it to valganciclovir, not for refractory disease like it's approved for, but as primary treatment for CMV-first infection because in cell transplant patients because you wouldn't see um, the neutropenias that you see with valganciclovir or with merbivir, so they thought maybe this would be a, a, an alternative option. And alas, it didn't work. Patients that had a clinical response in the merivivir group was 69% versus 77% for valgancyclovir. So it is not non-inferior, a la Merino trial PTSD. Um, There was way less neutropenia though. 63% of patients receiving valgancyclovir experienced neutropenia compared to 20% in the merivivir group. Um, And then 17% of patients had to prematurely discontinue treatment in the valgancyclovir group versus 4% in the meribivir group. So it's safer, but maybe not as effective for CMV treatment. And so still only indicated for refractory resistant disease basically failed its primary treatment trial, which is interesting because that drug also failed its prophylaxis trials. So not sure what's going on there. And then the other study that they presented was latermivir extension for 200 days for prevention of CMB in cell transplant recipients. So latermivir is FDA approved For 100 days of prophylaxis in our positive cell transplant recipients. But whenever we discontinue universal prophylaxis, as we discussed extensively in our CMB episode, we see rebound and late disease. And so they said, well, let's go out to 200 days and see if that works as well. So this was a randomized placebo-controlled parallel group, multi-site, double-blinded efficacy and safety study. What happened is everyone got latermavir for 100 days And then they split and said, okay, you continue latermivir for 100 more and you go to nothing, which is just routine monitoring. And the primary endpoint was 2.8% of patients in the latermivir group got disease versus 18.9% in the placebo group. This was an endpoint of clinically significant infection or disease from week 14 through week 28. And so I guess this tracks, right? You're not going to get CMV if you're on therapy, right? So this makes sense. It was statistically superior. But when you stop Lutermivir at day 200, we still see late disease. So at week 38, the Lutermivir group was 14.6% versus 20.3%. And then week 48, again, 14% versus 20%. So less numerically less later disease, but you're still seeing later disease. These data actually aren't published, but they were presented at the tandem meeting in February, and um, it's ongoing if you want to track these data. It's on clinicaltrials.gov. And then last but certainly not least, our pediatric friends. This was a poster that was presented at ID Week, so it's not published either, but also on clinical trials. It's a phase 2B open-label multicenter single-arm study from birth to less than 18 years of age following allogeneic cell transplantation, looking at your pharmacokinetics. So yay for doing PK studies. The adolescent data was what they focused on in this presentation. And the punchline is for ages 12 to 17, the PK is really similar to adults. And so if you weigh at least 30 kilos and you're an adolescent, you're going to get the same litermivir dose as adults do. And that's it.
1: Jeanette, do you want to talk to us about fungus? Yes. Your enthusiasm for CMV will never cease to amaze me. Why since mean? it is the most applicable disease state to most of our practices
0: like, really hey, not you say though. that, like, but no one sees CMV. I know. I know. Like, I was what, being what, sarcastic. What away, <laughs> As someone that has kind of a difficult CMV case right now, I always appreciate Aaron's pearls. I've learned so much and I continue to learn. So keep telling me what all these new agents are and how I should use them, especially in my kiddos. Please. That's and thank true. You. All right. And that wraps up viruses and me talking about CMV still, even though this impacts so few patients, but I love it and talk about it all the time. But with that, Jeanette, do you want to move us into the fungal data,
1: which is also very fascinating? Yes, yes. Um, I will briefly move us through this fungal data. So George Thompson from UC Davis was the one who presented these data. He did mention in the beginning that there hasn't been a whole lot of practice-changing papers that have come out in the fungal realm. So his talk mainly focused on things he found interesting, which I appreciated. He breaks down his talk into different infections, so candidiasis, cryptococcus, endemic mycoses, and aspergillus. But in the interest of time, I'm just going to focus on three main areas that I found interesting, and also because we have discussed many of the topics on past breakpoints episodes such as rezifungin, regif- our once weekly echinocandin, and its study that led to FDA approval restore, ibrexafunger or even oral amphotericin, which Aaron touched on earlier in this pod. Um, there was a lot of discussion when we were setting up. Is jeppix dead? I would say it's probably like coding and it is currently being resuscitated. So Pfizer had this drug. <laughs>
0: That's nice. Such a good analogy. Like analogy. Yeah. It's <laughs> such a good analogy.
1: I hope it's not dead. I hope we revive no, it. No, I think it's re- I think drug. we're reviving it. It's being resuscitated currently. Um so it was available with Pfizer and then a few weeks ago actually it was acquired by Basilea, which is a company that is also bringing Ceftobiprole to market in the United States. So a company we want to be on the lookout for and hopefully they can revive Fosmanage Epics. But why do we care? So George Thompson presented on a paper published in CID, as well as a case series that was a late-breaking oral abstract at ID Week. Full data is available under the Late-Breaking Abstracts in ID Smorgasbord on Thursday, October 12th. So this Late-Breaking Abstract, again, was a case series of patients involved in an outbreak of Fusarium solani fungal meningitis following the receipt of epidural anesthesia in Matamoros, Mexico, which is a popular medical tourist destination. Interestingly, this is not the first fusarium meningitis outbreak related to epidural anesthesia. So in 2002, there was an outbreak in Durango, Mexico with fusarium solani meningitis with a 50% mortality rate. Now, traditionally, we have no good options for these patients. At the beginning of the outbreak this past year, the recommended regimen was amphotericin and voriconazole. However, they were able to get some patients' fosmanagepics. And in those patients who received this drug, there was a 14% mortality rate, so 1 out of 7 patients, as compared to 65% or 11 out of 17 in those who did not receive this drug. Notably, the patient who was on Fosmanagepix and ended up passing away was on it for less than 10 days, so that may have played a role. Now, these are very small numbers. However, it is very promising and um, why we're looking forward to this agent.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, I know it's like a case series, but a tragic, tragic fungal meningitis. Fusarium meningitis is bad, and to get that after getting anesthesia in Mexico is bad. I know it's a handful of patients, but saying 65% of them died without phosmanagepics, which like tracks, like this is most of these patients die because we have no option. And then a 14% mortality, if you added this drug, what? <laughs> like, I definitely
1: think it needs yeah. more looking into for sure. Yeah. I'll
0: be a little nauseous to not die, yes. which is its main side effect, but yeah.
1: All right. The next topic I want to touch on was the debate about screening for ocular candidiasis in patients with candidemia. So the 2016 IDSA guidelines for management of candidiasis state. For patients with candidemia, a retinal exam should be performed, preferably by an ophthalmologist. And this statement was backed mostly by clinical judgment and basically the consequences of missing candida endophthalmitis. However, in 2021, the American Academy of Ophthalmology or AAO recommended against routine ophthalmologic consultations for patients with candidemia, and instead suggested targeting patients who had specific symptoms of ocular infection, you know, instead of just blanket screening everyone, and they stated that endophthalmitis is now more rare in patients with candidemia with improved treatments and detection, citing it occurs in less than 1% of patients routinely screened due to candidemia, and they also stated outcomes data to support routine screening is lacking. A newer systematic review and meta-analysis was highlighted, and this was from May of 2023. And they found that among 66 studies that reported patients with candidemia who developed candida endophthalmitis, 35 studies used definitions consistent with concordant candida endophthalmitis. So this is more like a cut and dry definition of endophthalmitis. And of those concordant studies, they found a slightly different pooled prevalence of about 1.83% compared to the American Academy of Ophthalmology's less than 1%. The study also found that candida albicans candidemia specifically as opposed to non-albicans candidemia. And TPN were associated with candida endophthalmitis. However, it should be noted that only four different factors were actually able to be analyzed in the meta-analysis. So where does this leave us? It doesn't seem like there are strong indicators for risk factors to help determine which patients may most benefit from an ophthalmologic exam. And a recent CID viewpoint out of uh, UPMC recommends strategies that use maybe updated photographic technology that would allow for more high-resolution retinal images that you could actually train someone in the hospital to use to provide these screenings for patients, and then to couple that with teleophthalmology in order to cut down on wasted time and costs of uh, screening all of these patients. Overall based off of the evidence that was presented as well as some of the discussion I think the debate is definitely still there of what to exactly do with these patients in terms of screening them.
0: Be a good pro con episode.
1: Mm-hmm. I really want to, to know come, what
0: I think. Dr. Glockenflecken would do. Is this a pants patient or is this a telemedicine patient like a pants I patient. no it, it- Hey, I, I'm a pharmacist, so I'm not really going to weigh in on this particularly, but I am paying attention to the conversation. And I appreciate the most of the conversations that are trying to balance the benefits and the risks, as well as resource utilization. Because let's be honest, there's only so many hours in the day. I'm hopeful that people will continue the conversation.
1: Definitely. The last thing I did want to talk about was endemic mycoses mapping. So he had a couple of slides specifically on the paper by Mazzi and colleagues, the geographic distribution of dimorphic mycoses in the United States for the modern era. And this was a retrospective analysis of greater than 45 million Medicare beneficiaries from 2007 to 2016. And they mapped the geographic distribution based off of this data of the dimorphic mycoses. And it shows that the maps are clearly expanding. There was a mention in the presentation to be a little bit careful because sometimes these are people who have traveled and then Where they're being treated. However, if you look at the maps themselves, I think even if you take into consideration that people are traveling and coming back to their hometowns, that doesn't explain the map expansion. He did make a really great point that these um, infections should be mandatory reportable and that the ATS cap guidelines should mention histo or endemics in general in their guidelines. There is a Texas paper that he also mentioned that was, I don't practice in Texas, so this is a little bit of a mind-blowing paper to learn about. And they identified that 8% of all of their pneumonias were actually due to histo, which is insane, especially that our CAP guidelines do not mention to be on the lookout for these types of infections, and they really probably should. Yeah, endemics
0: can cause really bad disease in immunocompetent people. So, and I mean, if you live in Arizona, you're used to this and you're treating Coxie like CAP, and in Wisconsin, they young, healthy people come in and ARDS, that's blasto until proven otherwise, not other causes of community acquired pneumonia. So I agree. I thought this was a great paper. And I mean, I live more in the transplant ID space, but I think endemics like don't get enough credibility or consideration because people are like, oh, I don't live in the Mississippi River Belt. And it's like, that's just not true anymore. They're all over the country and it really needs to be something we're thinking of and we're testing for. And we have pretty good diagnostics, I'll say, as I squint for histoblasto. Etc. So I do, I love this paper. I think it's things that need to be on everyone's radar, at least in the United States. Yeah, the only thing that I will add is a shout out to a partner podcast in infectious diseases. So Editors in Conversation, which is hosted by Cesar Arias, they had a really interesting podcast episode on climate change and antimicrobial resistance that came out in early October, 2023, that had a guest panelist, Turo Val, that was a microbiologist that was basically talking about how we're going to see more and more changing epidemiology and the pace is going to increase. So we're going to uncover new organisms and the genomics and proteomics of existing uh, organisms out in the environment are going to change. And I see this as the result of that in terms of endemic mycoses, but it has other implications. So again, nerdy content for our audience listeners who will probably also enjoy that episode of a a partner-aligned pod. Yeah, so take a listen to that if you're so inclined. And Jeanette with all the pop culture TV references <laughs> for our practice-changing data. Uh, all right, ladies, with that, that brings us to the end of our second episode, Recapping ID Week 2023. Thank you, everyone, for going on this journey with us. And there's so much content you can explore. And thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. This episode was co-hosted by the Breakpoints hosts, Erin McCreary, Julianne Justo, and Jeanette Bouchard. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Erin McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Megan Klatt and Jeanette Bouchard. It was peer-reviewed by Drs. Angel Hagerly and Zing Tan. The executive producer of Breakpoints is myself. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Dr. Steve Smoke, and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.